would you pray for me um, as I go because my voice is already starting to go and I felt it in um, at the offering and I just need your prayer support right now you know I love this slide Christmas is a promise Properly understood, it's a promise of God's love in Jesus Christ. Nobody saw it coming, and you cannot, you cannot prepare for this. She was a healthy, active, cheerful 17-month-old girl, and suddenly she died. And it was a nightmare. Her family had stopped attending church a few years earlier. But a family member called their former pastor and he came right over. When Pastor Bill arrived, mom was beside herself. She was lying face down, sprawled out, in her deceased daughter's bedroom on the floor, tangled with blankets and stuffed animals. And she was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And she was unwilling to talk and she was unwilling to move. So Pastor Bill stood at the doorway into the bedroom, wanting to help but not wanting to intrude, mostly not knowing what to do. And some time went by, and then slowly Pastor Bill walked into the room and lied down on the floor, face down, right next to Mom, and put his arm around her and began to audibly cry out to God with her and for her, taking on himself her impossible burden and bringing it to God. (laughs) That is Christmas. At Christmas, Jesus Christ entered our room. Fully God, he became fully man. In order to lay down on the floor of human existence, dine in our place, for our sins, taking upon himself our misery, our sin, and death. One of the things Christmas, this promise of Christmas, reminds me of and helps me understand is Jesus, if Jesus is anything, what we learn at Christmas is he is an activist God. Jesus doesn't stand at a distance on a galaxy far, far away uh, throwing down uh, principles on how to manage suffering and evil. Rather, at Christmas, uh, Jesus Christ walked into your room. He walked into your room. in order to take upon himself your burdens, your sin, your brokenness, your suffering, not eradicating it, 
But by going to the cross and dying for us, destroying its power and uh, giving us the opportunity to be released from the chains of suffering and evil. Now the question I want to wrestle with this morning is why? Why did fully God become fully man? Why was Jesus born? Why did Jesus enter our room? And why do we miss it? Misunderstand it? Ignore it? So today I want to go to four verses at the end of Luke chapter 1. And draw three reasons, if you will, reasons for the incarnation, reasons why Jesus did this. It's sort of a, a, a basic theology of Christmas, if you will. And when we come to Luke chapter 1, as I'll read it in just a moment, I, I want you to know Jesus hasn't been born. He'll be born right away in Luke chapter 2. But John the Baptist has been born. And who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. If you will, he's the leader of Jesus' advance team. Who has been divinely appointed, chosen by God, to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And at the end of Luke chapter 1, in the verses we're going to read, John the Baptist's father, a father by the name of Zechariah, a Jewish priest, has been filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us, and is prophesying relative to who Jesus is and what he has come to do and why. So would you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 76. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is speaking, and he says, You, my child, now that's a reference to John the Baptist, who has been born, will be called a prophet of the Most High. Not God, but a prophet. For you will go on before the Lord, that's a reference to Jesus who is about to be born, to prepare the way for him. That's your assignment, John. You will prepare the way for Jesus to give his people the knowledge of salvation. Now, don't misunderstand. Knowledge here isn't merely an intellectual thing. It's an experiential thing. It's an existential thing. It's a, a knowledge of the heart. It's the difference between knowing honey exists and tasting honey and enjoying honey. For you will give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This is why Jesus has come. Because, now here we go to some layers behind it, underneath it. Because of the tender mercy of our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. To shine on those living in the darkness and in the shadow of death. And to guide our feet into the path of peace. You may be seated. Now, this is, these are some great statements of the theology behind the promise, the advent of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see these three things this morning. And the very first thing I want to talk about is human darkness. The reason Jesus came is to shine on those living in the darkness and in the shadow of death. Human darkness and human death. 
700 years earlier, Isaiah the prophet, prophet, also filled with the Holy Spirit, looks ahead and prophesies about the coming of Jesus Christ. And what he says 700 years earlier is very similar to what uh, Zechariah is saying right here. So look at these verses. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land have now noticed deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now I don't want you to misunderstand, because in the Bible, darkness is to the world what pollution is to a river. It's not the river that's bad, it's the pollution that's bad. And in the same way, it's not the world that's bad. God created the world and pronounced it good. The world is full of God's beauty and God's glory, but it's the darkness that's bad. And in the Bible, darkness has two primary characteristics. And the first is evil. Darkness has both evil in the Bible and ignorance as primary characteristics. So let me talk about evil for a second. I mean, just think of the brutality, the evil at the time of Jesus Christ, the corruption of the Roman government, its brutality, the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders, the widespread racism, unbelief, of not just uh, the peoples of the world, but also of Israel herself. Uh, For me, it's vividly illustrated in in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, when Herod, who happened to be the king of the Jews, learned from the wise men that the Messiah had been born, born in Bethlehem. So what does Herod do? He doesn't race down to see Jesus and bring uh, Mary flowers. No, he issues a decree that all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two are to be murdered. Now Jesus and his family have left, but all the other baby boys under two in the village of Bethlehem are murdered. It was a brutal world in the first century. And you know, in spite of our technology, in spite of our scientific advancements and all the comfort we enjoy, the world's really no different today. It's the headlines. It's the human heart. And what Herod, the king of the Jews, at the birth of Christ reveals is that the human heart has an enormous capacity for evil. I'm talking my heart and your heart. An enormous capacity for evil. As a matter of fact, one time, this was driven home to me when I was in seminary, and a professor, a a great man, a, a godly man, told the story, it was a confession of sorts, of getting so frustrated one night with his senile father that he slapped him. Now today, we don't go around usually, hopefully, and slap people externally but we travel through life 
slapping people internally. People that we don't agree with, people that have hurt us, people that are different with us, people that we harbor resentment towards. I have this thing internally where I want to slap Packer fans. And it's a problem because my son is a Packer fan. So it can create a huge conflict at Christmas. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, we want to internally slap them. We want to throw them under the bus. We want to separate our, ourselves from them. It's the evil. The human heart has an enormous capacity for evil. And this darkness is why Jesus came. Let me talk about ignorance. And by ignorance here, I mean the ignorance of God. I love the way Isaiah, in, at the end of chapter 8, puts it. Uh, speaking prophetically, describing his day, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and notice their God. Now look at the next verse. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. What is spiritual ignorance? Spiritual ignorance is looking toward the earth instead of looking toward God. It's not unbelief because all of us believe in something. It's just a question of what we believe. It's not unbelief. It's looking toward the earth, looking toward yourself, relying on your own smarts and rejecting or neglecting uh, God. It's focusing on what you see rather than what you don't see because somehow you have become convinced that since you can't comprehend it, God doesn't exist. Which is silly. Now recently, let me illustrate it this way. Recently, and I, recently Rhonda and I went to see Celine Dion in concert at the United Center. And it was a fabulous concert. Man, can she sing. And I loved every minute of it until we got to the last song. Because her last song was a benediction, just like a church service. And she was ushering us out, attempting to fill us with feelings of, of hope and goodwill and love for our, our fellow uh, humans. And so the song she selected was John Lennon's Imagine. And Ryan and I were there at the United Center with 21,000 of our best friends, closest friends. And so what is that song? Imagine no heaven or hell. Imagine no religion above, only sky. Imagine all the people living in peace and harmony, and on and on. And you know what was going on? She was looking, calling us, benedicting us to look toward the earth. And I just about lost my mind. That's overstatement, okay? I didn't have a lot to lose to begin with. But she's calling 21,000 of us to look to the earth, 
to usher in peace and love and harmony, and we can't even begin a discussion about peace and love and harmony if God doesn't exist. So I wonder this Christmas, what about you? Are you looking toward heaven or are you looking toward earth? Uh, what are you focusing on? I mean, this Christmas, the 22nd of December now, right? Are, are, are you living in light of this promise of the Son of God come to be our Savior, to take our sin? Or are you focused on your smarts and what you need to do and your agenda and, and on and on? Jesus Christ has said, or Zechariah, I should say, said about Jesus that Jesus would come to shine on those living in the darkness. And darkness in the Bible is both evil and ignorance. Be careful. Because what's humming, what's humming in the background in our culture is that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't care, and it's darkness. So let me go on. The second reason Jesus came, Zechariah tells us, is because of God's mercy. We see this in the preceding verse, in verse 78. Look at this piece of it. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, these opposites, I mean, human darkness and the mercy of God are not equal. Because human darkness is finite. God's mercy is infinite. And one day will be triumphant. Now, what is mercy? I like to think of it this way. Pity is feeling sorry for someone. Mercy is doing something about it. So it's Jesus entering that room and laying down his life on the floor of human existence in order to wrap his arm around you and say, I have died for you that you might live. Will you believe? You're going to believe in something. Will you believe in me? But I want you to note verse 78 and the word tender. It's fascinating that tender and mercy are together because tender in the original language means literally bowels. It's an ancient Near Eastern expression for the center of, let's say, human personality. The core of our existence, our inward parts, our heart. So when the word tender is used, it means that mercy is God's very own soul. It's his essence, it's who he is. It's his heart. So when we put these two words together and we ask ourselves, what does it tell us about God's mercy? It tells us that God's mercy is hearty. God's mercy comes from the core of his being. It's unfailing, it's gentle, it, it, it's loving. It, it, it has come to us to triumph over our darkness. I mean, I, I think of the opportunity that I've had over the years to see a, a mother cradling her newborn in the hospital. Our kids, 
uh, extended family, uh, actually our grandkids. And that to me is such a picture of the mother's mercy, the mother's compassion, the mother's tenderness, the tender mercy of a mother. And all of that points to the infinite tender mercy of God. God is infinitely great and is infinitely tender. Someone has said God made heaven and earth with his fingers, but he gave us a son at Christmas with his heart. It was tender mercy that caused God to clothe Adam and Eve after their rebellion, after their fall, after their sin. It was tender mercy that caused God to forgive David after his adultery and then murder. It was tender mercy that caused uh, God to bring Israel into the promised land after their decade after decade of complaint and chronic unbelief. It's why the most central, the most important piece in the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and then temple, the most important uh, part of the Holy of Holies is called the mercy seat. Now, I don't know what you think about God today, but if your God isn't overflowing with mercy toward you, that's not the God of Christianity. My God is full, infinitely full, unfailing in his tender mercy. Now, do you see what this means for you? What it, what it means for me? I mentioned this a while back, but what has struck me so vividly is that in the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus' discussion on worry, he concludes by saying, every day you're going to have trouble. Jesus put it like this. Each day has enough trouble of its own. As if uh, to tell us living a worry-free life has nothing to do with the amount of trouble we're going to experience. That in spite of the trouble, we can experience contentment and joy. So Jesus is telling us uh, that we will have daily trouble. We'll have trouble every day. But in the Old Testament book of Lamentations, we are told that God bestows daily mercy. So in chapter 3, we read, His mercies are new every morning. Daily trouble, daily mercy. Uh, friends, God knows who you are, where you are, and what you are facing. And he has form-fitted daily mercy for your daily trouble. You know, I, I think about this a lot because I've been through a lot in my life. And all the things I've, I've been through, an alcoholic father, my parents' divorce, the rampant materialism and unbelief in my family of origin, then the death of my first wife to cancer, the near death of a daughter in labor and delivery, my own cancer, the stresses that, and, and difficulties that are just uh, uh, part of the um, process in, in ministry. In each of those, and the little things and the medium-sized things and the big things I've just mentioned, I've always had a choice. 
Am I going to focus on daily troubles or daily mercy? What's going to get me up in the morning? What's going to either burden my heart or lighten my heart? And I wonder about you, what's your focus? Your God is full, infinitely full of tender mercy. Don't let your daily troubles squeeze that knowledge out. Live in light of God's mercy. So let's move on. Why did Jesus come? Well, verse 79 tells us because of human darkness. Verse 78 tells us because of God's mercy. And then third and finally, because Jesus wants to be your sunrise, the sunrise of your life. Uh, I have thought so much about this metaphor over the last couple of weeks because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Now this is a metaphor. The kingdom of God, this world, is full of metaphors. The older I get, the more I live in light of the metaphors uh, that are all around me. And here Zechariah, full of the Spirit, prophesies that Jesus is the rising sun. In other words, God loves us so much that each and every day of our lives, he gives us a sunrise to point to Christmas. To point to Jesus. Now think about that. Tease that out with me for a moment. Uh, just like the sunrises we know every day, Jesus' first coming was quiet and gentle. The sunrise ha happened slowly. I mean, we're talking a manger, Bethlehem, shepherds, not big shots. And Jesus came. To bring forgiveness, to redeem us, and, and, and to rescue us. You know, the first coming is a, a coming of love. It, it, it's Christmas, but the second coming won't be a sunrise. It'll be like the scorching heat of the noonday sun. It'll be a, a coming of scorching judgment as God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. But not the first coming. Then the, what was the first coming? Uh, the first coming was Jesus coming to be light, to be life, and to give us warmth, intimacy, of family, the family of God. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus invites us, come to me. All you who are weary and, and burdened, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon uh, yourself, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Light, life, warmth, a sunrise. One day, one of the best ways I can illustrate it is one day in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, I believe, um, Jesus sends into the darkness his disciples to row across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a, a big lake, so he sends them across. He elects to stay on the shore in order to pray and to spend time alone with God, and the disciples go out. 
And Jesus is engineering this as part of their training program, training regimen. And suddenly, after a couple hours of rowing, a fierce storm comes up in the middle of the night. And the headwinds are so fierce that the, the disciples are straining at the oars. They're sweating. It's raining. Uh, they're taking on water. And they're hardly moving forward at all. And then Jesus walks on water. And he intends to pass the disciples by, but he, becomes, he comes near enough to the boat that the disciples will see him. And they see Jesus and they cry out because they think it's a ghost. And all of a sudden in their weariness and the aching of their muscles, they're totally wigged out. They're totally afraid. And they think they're under attack. So what does Jesus do? Remember Jesus is the sunrise. He comes closer to the boat and he says to the disciples, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he climbs in the boat and he calms the storm. And so we want to ask the question, what in the world is going on there? What's the point? And the point is sometimes you and I need the storm in order to see the glory. We need uh, the storm to see the Savior. We need the darkness to appreciate the light. Jesus is your sunrise. Think about that every time you see the sun rise in the morning. Jesus is with you, Jesus is for you, Jesus is in you, but he is God. And sometimes he will send you into places that you would rather not go in order to produce in your life what you cannot produce on your own. I say this because when we think of God's mercy, we want the mercy of relief. We want the mercy of an easy day, a, a good day as we call it. A hassle-free day. Uh, but Jesus sends the disciples in, into the storm, teaching us that Jesus wants us to experience days of challenge, days of stress, days of difficulty, even days of disappointment, in order to recognize our emptiness, that we can't get to the other side on our own. And at Christmas, he walked into our room, he climbed into our boat, Because he and he alone is the sunrise of your life. You see, it's the difficult roads that lead to the most beautiful destinations. And Christianity has supernatural origins born in suffering. And you and I, as believers in Christ, should expect both the supernatural and the suffering. And I say that as I conclude to say to you, you are not alone in your marriage difficulty or your health challenge or this thing going on at work or, or this confusion where you feel like your feet are firmly planted in midair. Uh, Jesus in his tender mercy is orchestrating that for you so that you will see he is the sunrise. Yes, the world is full of darkness, don't be surprised, but God is full of mercy. Cling to him in the greatest, most vivid way that was expressed is in Christ being born at Christmas that he might die on Good Friday for our sin. 
And I want to encourage you to see Jesus as your sunrise, the sunrise, your light, your life, your friend. Let's pray. So, Father, I want to thank you for these friends that are here today. And I want to ask that you would bless us, that in the midst of all the rush and all the press of Christmas, that we would see Jesus entering our room as our sunrise. Would you fill us by your spirit that we might see your son? And we thank you and we praise you for all you have done for us at Christmas. Amen.